today we're going to see in Psalm 11, when things fall apart, I'll begin reading at verse 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful that in a world filled with sadness and sorrow, in a world filled with much distress, and even when our own lives seem to fall apart, we are thankful that we can call upon you, that you are the Lord who is in your holy temple. You are the one who sits on your throne, which is in heaven. Thank you that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. And we're especially thankful that you love your people, that your eye beholds your people, that your face shines upon those who are upright in heart. And we know that we are only upright because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are also thankful for your justice. Thank you that one day you shall judge the enemies of your people, those who persecute you, those uh, persecute your people, those who hate you and persist in that hatred until their death. We know that we shall see the righteous judgment of God poured out upon them. And we know that if it was not for Christ, we would deserve the same thing. And so we're thankful that your wrath was poured out upon Christ instead of us. And that it's because of him we have the hope of life everlasting. We have the promise of life everlasting. But we also have the assurance of your nearness to us. Thank you, O God, that you are our Father and we can call upon you. And so we ask and pray that as we have to deal with much trouble and toil and uh, difficulties in this world, especially as we need wisdom, especially if we perhaps need to flee, help us know to have the uh, know and help us have the wisdom to know when to flee and when to stay. And we ask and pray that we would not flee based upon fear, but based upon faith and trust in you. We know so often we are fearful of everything that is happening, and we are more fearful of man than we would like to admit. Thank you for your forgiveness, and thank you that we can put our trust in you. So uphold us, uplift us, remind us today where we can go uh, in times of suffering, in times of trial, in times of uh, oppression. And thank you that you are God. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I'm currently reading a book called China's Reforming Churches, and the first part is all about the history of the Presbyterian Church in China. And one chapter focuses on the Korean Presbyterian Church and all the work that they had done in China, and it spans about the past hundred years or so. One thing that struck me, though, on this chapter on Korea and the Korean Presbyterian Church is that the heart of the Korean Presbyterian Church used to be in Pyongyang. And if you know your history, you know that or you know your geography, that Pyongyang is the capital of North Korea. That was once the heart of Korean Presbyterianism uh, in Korea. And it wasn't until after the Korean War that God's people had to flee to the south, which is why there is a huge Korean uh, Presbyterian contingency in the south. Everything fell apart for the people of God in Pyongyang. 
and the people of God had to flee. And so we shouldn't be surprised if or when those situations may or could happen to us as well. And when our lives seem to fall apart, when our country perhaps seems to fall apart, is there a place that we can go? Now, we don't know much about David's situation in Psalm 11, but we know much about David's life according to 1st and 2nd Samuel. We know that many things did fall apart for David, and we know from the body of this psalm that things are falling apart for David. There's trouble for the Lord's anointed, even so much so that it is so bad that he does seem to get bad advice from good friends on what he must do in the midst of the time of trial and suffering. And that's one thing I really appreciate about the Psalter as a whole. It really is the prayer book for the people of God. The, the, the authors of each psalm, the authors of the Psalter, they go through difficult trials in life. But is there, do they, uh, is there not a place that they can go and they teach us to go uh, as we read these psalms? It really is a real book for the people of God concerning the praises that we sing to God Most High. And sometimes those praises are filled with much Lament. Now, Psalm 11 is still part of book one of the Psalter, which, as Dr. Godfrey says, is called the king's confidence in the Lord. Focus on the struggles of faith and the confidence that God's people have in the midst of those struggles of faith that God's people go through. And Psalm 11 is an individual lament, uh, perhaps could have some confidence as well. Usually laments turn into a confident type of hymn, uh, but it is an individual lament. And the problem is very clear. When the righteous seem to have no foundation, the world is filled with sin and misery and the people of God, including the king, can go through it in this present evil age. Even as we consider Hosea, there is still a faithful remnant in Israel during the time of Hosea. And when the whole kingdom goes into captivity, that faithful remnant still has to go into captivity, even with the unregenerate people, even with Israel as a whole. And when you consider David's life, I mean, after he was anointed, Saul then tried to kill him. So he had to flee from Saul. We see everything with David's sin with Bathsheba and all that entails that comes after that. Even with David's son's mutiny, when Absalom tries to take the throne, not to mention there are enemies that abound from without. Problems within, problems without. Seems that the Lord's anointed really is going through it. Now, again, we don't know what is going on here, but we know that David really does go through it in his life. And so what are the people of God to do? Well, in Psalm 11, David affirms his faith in a righteous God when things are falling apart. And that is what we can do as well. We can affirm our faith and trust in the righteous king over this world when things seem to fall apart in our own life. And we'll look at this idea of things falling apart under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the advice from a friend, verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, we'll see the answer with our Lord in verses 4 through 7. So the advice from a friend and the answer with our Lord. Uh, I got the two words advice and answer from Dale Ralph Davis. It's not the exact same points that he, have, uh, he has, but I still like to point that out, advice and answer. So let's first look at the advice from a friend in verses 1 through 3. And notice we see it is a Psalm of David, the superscript. Uh, in Hebrew, it goes with verse 1. That's why when I say read verse 1, I always read the superscript. Uh, but we see to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. So it is a Psalm writ 
written by the king in Israel, written by the anointed king of Israel. We see in Psalm 2 concerning the Lord's anointed. We know that Psalm 2 points ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But God had made a covenant with King David and said to him, I have sworn I made a covenant with my servant David. I will establish his seed and I will build up his throne to all generations. What we call that Davidic covenant, which is then fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that David is a man after God's own heart. And even after God enters into covenant with him, things fall apart. God, uh, things fall apart after he's anointed, but also after God enters into covenant with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's after that when David engages in sin with Bathsheba. It's after that uh, when the kingdom seems to be rent asunder or taken, or at least there's the mutiny attempt by Absalom to try and usurp his father after the time when God enters into that covenant with him. So things do fall apart for David before and after uh, the covenant actually being made and also after David is anointed. And so it's written by David and notice the firm foundation or the affirmation that he has as the psalm begins in the Lord. I put my trust or another way to translate it, in the Lord, I put, I seek refuge. Life in Israel is difficult for the remnant. There's idolatry from within, there's enemies from within, and there are, th- there are threats from without. Brethren, that's similar to us, isn't it? There's problems with our own sin. We have problems with relationships. We have concerns about our jobs. And then we're concerned about our country. We're concerned about invasion. We're concerned about war. We're concerned about agendas. I mean, there's tons of things that could cause us, should cause us great concern in this present evil age. Why would anybody want to stay here uh, forever? We want something greater. We want something where there's none of that going on in this present world. And so as we walk through this world, as we have to deal with all those trials and struggles and sins and difficulties, is there not a place we can go in the Lord? I put my trust. We can put our trust in God and his promises. This is a similar language we saw in Nahum chapter one. And that's with Nineveh reigning. That's with that cruel uh, empire that is ruling over all the the, the nations in uh, the ancient Near East world. And so there is this confident place that the people of God can go when there are tyrants that abound and there are many and those tyrants shall be until the end of this world. There are good rulers in this world, but there are very bad rulers in this world and we shouldn't be surprised by them when we see them in this present age. But there is a place God's people can go in the Lord. I put my trust and then David goes on to address the advice that he gets from his friend in the rest of chapter one and into verse three. And we see the advice, and I think it extends from the word flee all the way to at the end of verse three. What's interesting is the new King James has the quotations end at the end of verse one. So flee as a bird to your mountain. But if you're paying attention as you read this, uh, the Psalter, the quotations go to the end of verse three. Now, commentators are divided. It's not really a big deal. I do think that the, the words of the friend uh, go to verse three, but at the very least, if it doesn't, verses two and three highlight what David perhaps is thinking. But I do think it is the advice uh, that the friends are giving. And so in this time of trial, David says to them, how can you say to my soul, 
I've put my trust in the Lord, yet my dear friend, how can you say this very thing to me? How can you give me this advice? Flee as a bird to your mountain. I think the, what is in view here is David is seeking advice from a close friend, not so much from an enemy, not so much from others, but one who is near and dear to him. Brethren, we might seek advice from others, and sometimes people might just give us unsolicited advice, and we know that people mean well, but the reality is sometimes it can be bad advice, and this is bad advice that we see here. Now, there is wisdom when it comes to persecution. Our Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 10, if they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. But there's also wisdom to know when to flee and know when to stay. There's also the wisdom to know when to avoid that perhaps uh, uh, that 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 imminent death and when to face it like a flint. And our Lord Jesus knew that, didn't he? He knew when it was his time. He fled persecution when it wasn't his time to die. And when it was his time to die, he set his face like a flint. And so what we see here is perhaps uh, the emphasis of the friends is not trust in Yahweh, but it is fear. They have a fear of man rather than trusting in God and trusting in his ways. And so they say, flee as a bird to your mountain. And even again, with the Korean Presbyterian Church in North Korea, some stayed and some fled. I don't begrudge the people that fled and we pray for the people uh, that have stayed. And hopefully we have no idea, but hopefully there is some seeds that have been have remained over the past 50 or so years. But we need wisdom. But for here, the emphasis seems to be, David, your safety is more important than trust in God. Brethren, can safety be an idol? Brother, I'm not saying we shouldn't protect our families. We shouldn't, you know, may, you know, it's not wrong to have locks on your doors. That's probably a good thing or some sort of Internet or uh, Internet security, certainly because there are cyber attacks now these days, but also certainly for your homes. All those things are fine, but we cannot make safety this all encompassing idol. And that is perhaps what the friends are doing here. Flee to the mountain, flee to the place of solitude, flee and get away from your enemies. For look, there are many who are all around. Now, for what we see in Psalm 11, we must remember the old covenant context. David is the king, and if he flees, it must not be for fear, but by divine direction. Again, that's important. We must fear God rather than man. We must trust in his ways rather than fear man. And the advice of the friend seems to be based upon the fear of man rather than faith in God. And again, these friends probably meant well, but it is not good advice, is it? Dale Ralph Davis shares the example of an advertisement he saw for a college prep school. And it's really challenged or it's really um, wanting to get at parents to protect their sons from the evil universities that are out there. And so uh, this ad had a pretty girl talking to your son at university. And the emphasis seems to be, what might that young, pretty lady do to your son? What might she draw him into? And so David says, the concern of the ad implies subtlety of the situation. The danger doesn't come from a fire-breathing, faith-destroying ogre, but from an easy looker to whom you are forming an emotional attachment. Friends mean well, but friends sometimes have terrible advice. 
And it might be advice that is not biblical at all. They might be lovely Christians, but their advice just might be terrible. Remember Peter in Matthew 16? This is right after Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of God. What does Jesus say? I'm going to die. The son of man is going to be delivered up. The son of man is going to die, be buried and rise again. There's that assurance there. What does Peter say? May it never be, Lord. But Jesus had to go. It was the divine plan and divine purpose for Jesus to die upon that cross. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He goes from the highest high to the lowest low. You are the son, you are the Christ, the son of God too. Get behind me, Satan. But Peter had his foibles. Peter had his ready, fire, aim sort of attitude in life, right? And he's just, boom, no, Jesus, don't do that. But that was not the right sort of response. For the Lord had said, I must go and I must die. And so, flee as a bird is not good advice here. And the reason they give it this advice, again, it might be for good reasons, or, but it is not good advice. For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string. They may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. There are wicked people in this world. And those wicked people hate the Lord's anointed. Those wicked people uh, 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 plot vain things. I was going to say vot. I was thinking plot and vain together. But Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord's anointed is not immune from the hatred of man. And if Jesus was not immune from the hatred of man, don't be surprised if the world hates you. And that's exactly what our Lord tells us. It's exactly what our Lord uh, warns us about, that we might find comfort and strength in him. And certainly our Lord Christ, who is David's greater son, was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but he still set his face like a flint. And he did not waver in what he came to do. Even in the face of all those arrows that were shooting at him, even when the Pharisees tried to plot to take him out, it was in the Lord's timing when that actually occurred. And there are people that do hate the upright in heart. They hate the Lord's anointed, hate those who are connected to God. And there are people that just want to remove them from the face of this planet and want to take them out. When we learned about Cuba, when we learned about the situation that is going on there, one thing that the brother said is that maybe I mentioned this. I can't remember if I mentioned it in prayer or if I mentioned a sermon, but you can hear it again because maybe you forgot. But Marx and Engels hated one guy. You know who that was, dear brethren? Charles Spurgeon. They lived around the same time, but they hated that one guy. And that's why reformed folk in Cuba are targeted with much more vehemence by the government because of that very thing, because of that factoid. You see, man hates God and man wants to remove man in his sin, hates God and wants to take out the people of God. And certainly that is the case with the Lord and his anointed. They may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. They ready fire aim, or ready uh, aim and fire uh, at the people of God. And that's what we also saw in Psalm 64, which we read at the outset, how we read at the outset. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. 
from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words. So it's a metaphor for words, metaphor for taking them down, metaphor perhaps for false witness. They may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have a perfected, we have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. And certainly we saw this with Saul and his hatred for David. He wanted to kill David. He wanted to remove the Lord's anointed. David really went through. We saw that hatred for those of God. And so when there are wicked people who hate the people of God, and when there's still sin and misery in this present evil age, verse three, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That is, I'm sure that is a question many of the people of God have asked throughout the centuries. It is a question that all of God's people seem to ask. What then can the righteous do? Even great men of faith in the Old Testament have fearful moments. Abraham was fearful of Egypt, fearful of Pharaoh. And so he said, "Uh, honey, let's say you're my sister. And even too, when he went into the land of Gerar uh, with Abimelech, he did the same thing as well. You see, there's only one who was perfect in every way, one who went to uh, and did what he was supposed to do throughout his entire life. The people of God have questions much like the advice that is given in verses two through three. People of God, maybe perhaps we're not like Pyongyang and the Korean church that is there and we have to flee and maybe that day will come, but there are still many times in our lives where we have questions and wonder what can we do? Where will money come to pay for rent? Will my adult, my adult child ever walk with the Lord? Will my sick child recover? Will my parents recover? What happened to my marriage? What is happening to my marriage? Which communist country does Canada resemble the most? What will happen if they close our church? What will happen if I resist? Those things come up a lot, and there are many other questions that people have. And we all have to ask. We all ask them. We're all concerned about them because we all have difficulties in this world in which we live. And is there a place that we can go? Is there someone we can call upon? Is there an answer for the faithful in response to the advice that we see in verses 2 through 3? And that's certainly what we see in verses 4 through 7. We saw the advice from a friend. Now we see an answer with our Lord in verses 4 through 7. And the answer is God is sovereign. What a wonderful Calvinist David is. I know that's an anachronism, but he understands the sovereignty of God. And that's what gives him comfort and encouragement in this present world. He also understands God is a just God and God is going to bring judgment. That gives him comfort and encouragement in this present world. And notice what he says in verse four. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids tests the sons of men. Notice we see the nearness of God and the transcendence of God, the nearness. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now the tabernacle was built or the tabernacle was made at the time of David, but was the temple made at the time of David? Hopefully you know your biblical history to say no to that question. 
But David understood that he could call upon his God. He understood he could go to his God always. And there is our God who is in his holy temple. And the temple uh, aspect highlights the nearness of God and presence of God with his people. You see, David understood it wasn't just the temple, but it was the fact that his God would be with him wherever he went. He trusts in his Lord. He looks to his Lord. Psalm 2 talks about how God has set his king on his holy hill, of Zion and other Psalms as well. He speaks of how he cries out to God uh, who hears him from his holy hill. And here we see again, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is near to his people. He is with us. He understood Yahweh is the one who reigns over all, but he understood Yahweh would be with him in the midst of all that he is going through. But he also understands he is king over all. And that's why he says the Lord's throne is in heaven. He is a near God, but he's a king who reigns over all. He is with his people, but he's also one who sovereignly governs all things that come to pass. David says, David replies that his picture does not imply Yahweh is removed, but that he rules. That the throne is not the place of inactivity, but of supremacy. It does not suggest distance, but dominion. The purpose and point we can say is, yes, my world is falling apart, but it's okay. The Lord reigns over all things. The Lord disposes all things for his glory and for the good of his people. The comforting truth of God's sovereignty applies to God's people in every circumstance. Sometimes, brethren, when something good happens, we always like to say, that was the Lord's providence. But the bad stuff is the Lord's providence too, isn't it? The difficult things that we have to deal with in this world are also from the hand of God. Remember, providence is the power of God by which he governs, upholds, directs, and disposes all things to the end in which they were created. That is, God is working now through, the, 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 uh, through secondary causation in this present age in which we live. And we can take comfort in that. We know that. We know what God is doing, and we know God especially loves his people. And what man means for evil, God does mean for good. And this is what I think the main purpose of the book of Revelation is. In the midst of tribulation, which just characterizes uh, the time between Christ and first, first and second coming. Now we are in the tribulation, dear brethren, because of all the wickedness and sadness and sorrow and difficulty in the world. So where do we get comfort? There is one who is the son of man who is in the midst of the lampstands. There is that lamb who is worthy, who sits upon the throne, that one who shepherds and leads his people to fountains of living waters and who will wipe away every tear. That's what I think the book of Revelation is talking about. And I think it's meant to be a comfort, especially as it was written, I guess, as uh, John received that vision in the first century. It was meant to be for the church initially in that first century, and then has application for the church throughout the ages. Christ reigns supreme. We're going to deal with beasts in this world. Anti-Christian religion, anti-Christian government. We're going to deal with that in this present age. And there are beasts everywhere, dear brethren, that hate the people of God. So where do we find our comfort and strength? The lamb is on the throne. 
That's what Revelation is all about. It is meant to be a comfort for the people of God that our Lord is King. But the book of Revelation and other books as well, and Psalm 11 also teaches us that the Lord is our judge, or is a, is a just judge. He is the one who sees all things. He is our judge, but thankfully we're not going to be judged by our works. We're going to be forgiven because of Christ and what he has done. And so in verses 4 through 6, we see how the Lord is our judge as well. His eyes behold. He is omniscient. He sees all things. But then sometimes we question whether or not God sees things, right? Because we see wickedness abounding in this present age. Well, Psalm 10, the psalmist there, which is probably David as well. Psalm 9 and 10 perhaps could be one psalm. We do see that the wicked seem to prosper. Why is that? Why do the wicked seem to be getting away with everything? The Lord sees. The Lord is omniscient. The Lord is guiding all things providentially for his reasons and for his purpose. And sometimes we just have to submit to that, don't we? We want to know all the answers. We want to know why. Why am I going through this now? Why am I dealing with this certain situation and certain trial? Brethren, I do not know the specific why, but we do know the comfort that God is doing it for your good and for our good. That's hard for us sometimes, but it is meant to be a comfort for the people of God that God is doing all things for the good of his people. And he sees all. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. As we go through affliction, he tests the faithful and the righteous to see if we will stand in him and obey in the midst of great trials. Does not God test Abraham? Now I know Abraham. It's not Abraham did not earn his way, but it, his works, his sacrifice of Isaac was an assurance that it was a living faith. This is very clear according to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 does not conflict with the Apostle Paul. James 2 is dealing with hypocrites, dealing with those who say, I came in by faith, but I can live any way I want to. No, faith is faith works through love, according to Galatians chapter five. Faith is not founded or grounded in love, which would be saying that our faith is grounded in our works, but faith works through love. That is, love is an evidence of one's faith. And notice in James 2, it was his sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 that affirms uh, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, which is Genesis 15. God tests his people and he tests us in affliction. He helps weans us from the world in our affliction, but he also tests us in affliction as well. Will we stand in great times of trial and times where we might fear man, will we stand and fear God above all? Will we fear God rather than man, even in times where we are fearful, dear brethren? I said last week, I have not gotten over COVID. I think that's why I'm dead tired, dear brethren. I have not gotten over that situation. Everything that went along with that, dear brethren, I must confess I was fearful. I mean, you never know. Knock, knock, knock. We had that one knock that one time and my knees caved in because here comes the cavalry, right? To take me to wherever I might be going. But that's a fearful thing. We are not disembodied spirits. We are real people who really have to deal with fearful moments, but we must trust God more. 
We must trust God above what we see with our eyes and obey him rather than man in the midst of things that might fear us. And thankfully, God is the one on his throne. God reigns over all. He tests the righteous, but he also will bring judgment upon the wicked. Verse five, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God hates sin. God is angry with the wicked every day, dear brethren. There is none of this. God hates the sin, but not the sinner. If one is born in sin and they have a sinful nature, God is angry with the wicked every day. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And God does so righteously because God must hate sin. God is absolute moral purity. God is absolute perfection. He must hate sin. He must punish sin. And thankfully, he does so in Christ Jesus that we might have life everlasting. But one day he shall punish sin when he comes, Christ comes again. The wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. David knows this, and it gives David great encouragement. God's justice gives David assurance in the midst of his trial. He, David knows he is the one who does not bring vengeance, but God is the one who shall do do so. And notice what God shall do. It's funny, in the comforting psalm, there's hellfire and brimstone. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. God is going to bring judgment upon his enemies. And there is a very clear allusion back to Genesis 19, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. What does God do? He judges wickedness and rains fire down from heaven, which is a foreshadow of the end time judgment. There are many foreshadows to that end time judgment. The flood is a foreshadow to the end time judgment. Uh, Israel being taken into captivity, Babylon or um, Judah taken into captivity to Babylon is also a foreshadow of God's end time judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem at AD 70 is also a foreshadow of the end time judgment. And there is that assurance that God will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that is meant to be comforting for us, dear brethren. We want Christ to come back to be with him, to praise his name, to gaze upon Christ and see him as he is. But also he's going to bring an end to sin. He's going to bring an end to wickedness. He's going to bring an end to the ones who persecute the people of God. Brethren, it's good to pray for the salvation of persecutors. I'm not against that type of prayer. But it's also not wrong to pray that God would bring righteous judgment on his enemies. Again, I'm not, you're not being vindictive. It's an imprecatory prayer. I'm not saying uh, that we bring that judgment. But we pray that God's justice will be seen. That is what we pray for with imprecatory prayers. And David knows, and it gives him assurance in the midst of the time when things are falling apart, that God will judge his enemies. God will bring down tyrants. They shall receive their due, and he shall notice it. Uh, the fire and brimstone shall be the portion of their cup. They have sinned against God. They have killed and murdered the people of God. They have violated God's law and they persisted in that till the day that they die. They will manifest that they are the children of the devil, as we saw this morning in first John. And it's going to be righteous, a righteous judgment, a righteous justice. It is coming 
and it is meant to be what can calm the people of God during disaster. <laughs> Do we ever think that way? Things are falling apart. People are doing terrible things to me. God's going to judge. I mean, we don't really think that way, do we? But that's what gives David comfort and strength, comfort and encouragement in the midst of what he is going through, that God is in his throne room, God is reigning, and God will bring judgment upon his enemies. He is king, he is judge, but also notice in verse 7, it ends on a comforting, positive note. The Lord loves the righteous, for the Lord is righteous. The Lord is goodness in his essence. He is righteous in his essence. He is absolute purity and moral perfection. And what does the one who is absolute purity and moral perfection love? Righteousness. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. He loves those who are upright in heart. And again, the only way we're upright in heart is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what justification bestows upon us. It is that declaration that we are not guilty in the sight of God most high. That's why the reformers defended it with vehemence, because our standing before that judgment seat of God is not based upon anything we do, but it's based upon Christ and his finished work. And we are righteous in Christ Jesus for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness and notice his countenance beholds the upright. His face shines upon the upright. His favor shines upon the upright. We saw this in Psalm 4. When there one who is discouraged is asking, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's a promise that God gives to his people. His countenance beholds the upright. Even when we are going through it, dear brethren, his face shines upon us. And one day we will see Christ. We will behold our Christ and we will praise him and honor him and give him glory world without end. And it is for the upright in heart. Those who do not God shall be cast into the lake of fire, which is what Revelation says in 20 and 21, which probably alludes back to Psalm 11, verse 6. But again, it does end on this comforting note and shows us the God that we need. He loves his people. He will judge the righteous, uh, judge, uh, judge all, and he will judge the wicked. And his favor is towards his people, though our outward circumstances say otherwise. And so because of that, we must never let our circumstances make us forget the promises of God. That's exactly what Hebrews 12 says. Remember, the Hebrews were fearful, perhaps, of persecution. That's perhaps why they wanted to go back. One reason why they perhaps wanted to go back to the old covenant but the writer of the Hebrews highlights, you've come to Zion. You don't have to go to Sinai. You've come to Zion, and we've heard our God. You've heard from our Lord. And we hear it, see in Psalm, uh, Hebrews 12, 26, whose voice then shook the earth, and now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Brethren, the people of God must and shall, be, shall remain, and we shall remain forever. We have a firm foundation in whom we stand. And I think Davis sums it up well, and this is where we'll close. So what is Psalm 11 saying to us? It is saying that faith needs discernment to filter out counsel of despair and fear. Faith needs vision to see the just and reigning God. And faith needs hope that anticipates awaking and gazing on his face. All this should prove of real help when everything falls apart. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you are our rock and our shield and defender and our firm foundation. We know that we do go through it in this present world with various things that we have to deal with. And yet we are thankful that we can put our faith and trust in you. And we ask and pray that we would know that you are our God, that you are the one who reigns over all, that you are the one who is sovereign, that you are the just judge of this whole world, and you shall judge the living and the dead. Thank you for that comfort when there are enemies who abound. We know that there is the world, the flesh, and the devil. We know that there are those uh, who are the children of the devil who hate the children of God and despise them. And we're thankful that you teach us this in your word. You remind us of this. Help us not to be bitter. Help us not to be vengeful. But help us to recognize that you are the just God in whom we can put our faith and trust in the midst of trials and tribulation. Help us not to give bad advice. Help us to know your scriptures well, to be able to give godly advice uh, in difficult situations. But we're thankful that we can come back to your word and be reminded of who you are and the promises that you give to us. Thank you that when we are despairing, when we are uh, in the midst of tears, uh, we are thankful, O oh Lord, that you're the one who beholds us. You're the one who sees us. You're the one who hears our sighs and our tears for you are our God and you love us and you care for us, and you have made us upright because of Christ Jesus. So thank you for what you have done. Thank you that we are declared uh, righteous in your sight. Thank you that we have renewed hearts uh, because of the finished work of our Lord and Savior. And we are thankful for the promises that he shall come again. And we ask and pray that our Lord would come again. But as we await, as we, uh, in the meantime, we ask and pray that we put our faith and trust in you. Be with us now by your spirit. Give us strength uh, for the rest of the week. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.